Hello, this is Dave Williams. Every child of the 60s grew up loving radio and the music it played. It was an era of change from our parents' hit parade and the doo-wop 50s that served as the transition to rock, rhythm and blues, soul music, and the country charts that began to cross over into pop top 40. It was a wonderful time, and those of us who grew up then did so with a new soundtrack of life. It affected everything we did. Well, Guy Zapolian wasn't just affected. He was obsessed. Is that fair to say? I was just thinking about that, Dave. Yeah, it's funny. I was kind of going over some notes that I wrote for a call a a couple months ago. And uh, um, from the time I was, uh, geez, I was like 13 years old. I was was fascinated with music. And um, I was actually living in in, um, Stanford, Connecticut. And I... Um, wanted to be popular with girls, <laughs> like we all did. Um, and, yeah. um, and I went to, uh, to the most popular uh, kid in school and I said, so how do you get popular with girls? And he said, well, you need to know about music and you should be listening to cousin Brucey on WABC. Yeah. And I said, really? And that's when the love affair started. I, I love cousin Brucey. I loved, you know, of course, 1965, which is when that was, was probably, probably the greatest year ever for music because the British invasion was absolutely in its second year of exploding and American artists began to catch up in, you know, 1965. So it was just, it was the best of the best. And so that was my introduction to pop music. Tell me what you think about this, because I'm a child of the 60s, too. And I think that 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 particular era was unique in history, musically, and with regard to uh, with society and and as a culture, because we were moving from the era that our that our parents had with with the hit parade and everything that preceded Mm -hmm. that, the big bands and so forth, but also the doo-wop era of the 50s. It all suddenly changed drastically in the 60s. And and we started to see this uh, conglomeration of different types of popular music, everything from uh, rock and roll to, uh, you know, uh, popular uh, softer hits and and uh, uh, R&B and soul and all of that stuff started coming down. And it, it actually created created the uh, the culture that we grew up in and developed beyond that. So I think it was kind of a unique time, don't you? Absolutely. Um, it was like you took all that music that had come before, you know, from Elvis to Jerry Lee Lewis to Chuck Berry, and, of course, all the doo-wop stuff after the Paola investigation. That was funny. I was actually um, talking to somebody the other day who talked about why doo-wop had become so successful because there was kind of a – a ban on a lot of the more aggressive R&B. So doo-wop became a thing as well. But you took all that music and um, you basically electrified it. And everything took a polish that had not been there before. And I'm not saying that, you know, the Carol, the Goffin and King, uh, you know, songs and things like that um, weren't, polished but there was a, a greater polish on everything um and everything kind of kind of uh, matured if you will whether it was you know folk becoming folk rock 
um, whether it was um, bands emulating the Beatles who changed everything, of course. Um, it was just a, a, a maturation of music in 1965. Um, and, and of course that continued to progress through the, you know, what we call the classic rock era in the, in the seven, in the early seventies through the seventies. Well, you look at the producers at that time too, people like Phil Spector and, uh, George Martin, of course. Um, that, that changed the sound. And then everything just, everything just, it, I don't know about you, but I, I felt uh, open to all of it. For heaven's sake, when I started working on the radio in top 40, uh, we were, we were playing, you know, we were playing all the Beatles stuff. We played the, some Jackson five at that point when it came around, but we would play, I could remember playing Led Zeppelin and followed by the doors, followed by Barbara Streisand and, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, anything went the soft stuff mixed with the hard stuff and everything. Everybody seemed to love it all. And that's what's wrong with music today. And I, I, I don't know if you've ever read anything I've written. Um, probably not. I, I've written a lot about the music cycle. I don't know if you're aware of that. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that next. Go ahead. Okay. But, but, um, th- you know, I, I've been in radio since, you know, thank, thank God for people like you who lend out a helping hand and kept me in when I was, you know, a, a bratty little kid <laughs> who should have been fired. Um, but, uh, I, uh, I, um, you know, I've, I've had the, the, you know, the, the thing of being in the radio business up until 19, until, uh, 2020, uh, into 2020. And, um, and I actually, it was my decision to retire because my wife said, you know, um, <laughs> I'm tired of you working 80 hour weeks and <laughs> I need you, I need you around. So, um, but, but watching that and then writing about the music cycle, um, you know, one thing I noticed that happened and it's one of the, I call it the death of a thousand cuts that radio has put itself through. Um, and I've written about, that's one of the things I've written about a lot about the death of a thousand cuts that we did to ourselves. Um, but one of the things we did was we niched ourselves as the top, at top 40 did where, no, you can't play that soft stuff and you can't play that rock stuff. Oh, geez. Let's leave that to our alternative radio station that's down the hall. You know, we don't want to take their music. And, 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 you know, and so. This whole idea, the top 40 or CHR, some people call it, had to be this narrow, narrow, um, you know, niche format was insanity because what made top 40 great was that it played everything as you were referencing just now. Well, a lot of that was a matter of assumptions made on the part of radio programmers, I think. I uh, say, well, our audience won't go for that. Our audience wouldn't like a, you know, what we now refer to as a crossover song because that's country music. That doesn't belong on this station. And where in heaven's name would rap and hip hop have fit in in those days? Oh, they were, you know, back in the, back in our day, they weren't played. Yeah. But they weren't played because they were, could seem, you know, they were, <laughs> I had a good friend of mine who was a psychologist. Um, and I would, he would say, well, why aren't you playing this on your top 40 radio station when I was a consultant? And I would say, it's too black. 
They go, too black. Right. And I go, it's too black. It's just, it, it will appeal. And, and it's, I'm not being racist in what I'm saying. I'm just saying right. the appeal to a, you know, to a white listener or to the mainstream is going to be too extreme. It's, it's not pop enough and it's not melodic enough. And even the, the, the hip hop programmers that I work with at iHeart would talk about the need for melodic hip hop and those songs would have been played. Fair so. But yeah, I mean, all those genres, you know, basically, you know, we just didn't play them back in, you know, your day in the early seventies or, you know, and, you know, my day in the, in the, uh, the late seventies as music director. Talk about the, uh, the labels that saying the song was too black. Of course, you couldn't get away with that today. I don't care who you are, <laughs> but, but, but the euphemisms came along, right? Now, so we suddenly we started calling it urban music, mm-hmm. which I always thought was a little bit silly. So tell me about the music cycles that you discovered. And, uh, you know, I, I honestly, I hadn't thought about it in the terms that, that you have established the, uh, the, 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 the concept. But when I read about what you, what you're talking about, I went, well, yeah, I recognize that too. It's fascinating to me. Tell, tell us about the 10 year cycle. <laughs> Okay, sure. And it, and it's about 10 years. I mean, sometimes it's a little less, well, sure. sometimes, you know, you know, it, in the, in the, uh, in the nineties it was. Um, but the music cycle is basically, um, a repeating pattern of music where it goes through three phases. Um, and it's based on, you know, basically the three core genres, which are pop, rock and R and B. Um, you know, and I consider, uh, you know, ballads and things like that, you know, they're, they're a style, but they're kind of a form of pop usually. Um, but those styles, those, those core genres change based on the phase of the music cycle. So, um, in the middle of the sixties, for example, you know, when the Beatles came along, there was the Beatles that were pop at the time, um, you know, and well, actually, we considered them rock back then and the stones and the animals and people like that. And then there was Motown, but Motown was very pop R&B, very polished, very well produced, written yeah. by Holland Dozier Holland, um, just just in, you know, incredible music background um, or instruments, instrumental background. And um, and then rock, you know, like and then pop, you know, was trying to think who else, you know, Herman's Hermits and people like that. Um, so that's the middle of the decade is, is this what we call the birth cycle or the rebirth. Birth would have been when Elvis came. That was the, the beginning of everything becoming this, you know, explosion of, of hit music and, you know, pop music. So it, going back to the Beatles, it goes through a period where you have everything is very pop, you know, 64, 65, 66, 67 ish. And then in 68, um, you get this progressive element and rock becomes the dominant genre, um, for a lot of people. And it's more extreme in its sound. And that's the, um, the extremes period. And then, like there's a reaction and a lot of it has to do with how radio reacts to it. Whoever the gatekeeper is that controls the music and tells the record labels what they want. Um, they, they, 
became fans of softer music. And so you had the singer-songwriter period in the early 70s. Um, and that went on for three or four years. And each of these phases usually is about three three or four years. Sometimes usually the, the pop phase is the longest. It's usually four years. And the doldrums is usually a couple years. And the extremes is usually a couple of years. Um, but it repeated and repeated. So I'm just without, you know, being boring about this, um, you know, in, in the mid seventies, it was the album artist. Um, it was the stones with, you know, with sticky fingers. It was the, you know, Stevie wonder with inner visions. Um, it was the, it was, um, Fleetwood Mac with their first successful album, that 74 to 76 period, um, was a rebirth. And then, uh, and then it went into, and, and I, again, I don't want to get boring here. I mean, you know, it, um, it, that happened again, it went into extremes. The one in the late seventies was actually too much of something that was disco. So, <laughs> yeah. so go ahead. No, 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 that's, that's all right. Go ahead. Finish, finish your thought, please. So anyway, so it, it repeats and it repeats and it repeats. And every 10 years, you have that pattern. And in 1980, after disco, um, you know, you had uh, uh, that extremes goes into that real soft period that people call Yacht Rock, you know, with Toto and Kenny Loggins and uh, Doobie Brothers and that sound and 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 every single doldrums and we're in doldrums now country music makes a huge comeback because you know we go back to oh gee country music is really great isn't it and everything else is is crap so we're going to start playing country music at top 40 and you know the last the last uh, 14 weeks almost of up until Taylor Swift came out with her latest stuff, the last 14 weeks on Billboard, all the number one songs were country songs, you know, uh, Morgan, Wall- Morgan Wallen, um, you know, uh, 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 Rich Man from uh, North Richmond. I can't think of the guy who does it. Um, and, uh, and then there was another, another one. Oh yeah. Try this in a small town by Jason Aldean. So all those, all those artists, um, you know, country was number one for 14 weeks, for God's sake. That's never happened in the history of, of top 40 radio. So anyway, the pat, every 10 years, this pattern of, of, uh, of birth extremes and doldrums happens. And then, you know, it's, it's, it goes on repeat. Well, I, correct me if I'm wrong here, if I'm heading down the wrong path, but I, I, what I hear you saying on these patterns, uh, these, uh, these, uh, can't remember what you call them anyway, these 10 year patterns. It just starts off with innovation and then that creates a new trend. And then the trends get, um, get uh, finessed or, or, you know, people say, okay, well, I want to do that too, but I'm going to do it this way, make it a little bit different and so forth. What you get in the end result it, it, after a, a long look back is I think there are a lot of people, uh, myself included. I'm afraid to say it. I don't like to say it, but. I listen to country music now and I go, well, that ain't country music. That's, that's crossover pop. Country right. music. That's the Eagles. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So anyway, but I mean, you know, like everything else, life goes on. I, I read something recently where you, uh, fairly recently, you said that uh, right now we are in the worst doldrums ever. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, it is. How, why is that? Um, we are in the worst doldrums ever because 
Um, there are less consensus hits. Um, it all ha- it all began, you know, during the COVID, um, you know, when everybody was shut down and artists weren't recording and it just kind of went into this lull and that kind of started it. But add that in, in, you know, it's like, what do they call it? The, uh, the perfect storm, as some people say, you had that going on. You had, um, uh, you had, uh, the, the radio beginning to absolutely fall apart as far as doing the basics right. Um, you know, just unfortunately getting greedy about commercial load, which is, you know, ridiculous. Um, you know, but again, you have to explain, you know, that's explained away by, by, you know, the debt load. You, that they, you know, they bought these radio stations for way too much. You know, that caused a lot of that too. Um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, a, a, decrease in focus on personality, which is, you know, as you know, being a great personality, um, you know, personality, radio personalities are the, are the lifeblood of radio. You know, we always thought, yeah, well, music's the base of the, as John Coleman used to say, music is the base of the pyramid. Well, that's true. But without great personalities to stage music, to tell stories, to engage people about pop culture, you, you have no reason to listen to radio, especially today when you can go, you know, listen to a streaming platform and not sit through commercials and things like that. Just carry around 10,000 songs in your phone. Yeah, that, you know that yeah. you've curated, and if and if the the option, if the alternative isn't somebody who is interesting you, <clears throat> entertaining you along the way, then what what's the point? You know, I don't don't need to hear a guy just uh, reading liner cards and then six minutes of commercials. So I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember my friend Sherman used to sit there and make the personalities read liner cards, and you know, I. T- <laughs> And my girlfriend at the time would talk about, you know, just, oh, I hate Sherman. He would choose working for him. And I was, I was going, and I was across the street working at Q in Tucson. And, um, you know, and he was brilliant. He was one of the most brilliant people about music, Sherman Cohen ever. But, uh, um, anyway, not, not about personalities. <laughs> he wasn't. So, um, but yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, and, and it's funny because, and I'll get back to the perfect storm in a second, but there's a station in Edmonton, Canada that's doing a lot of the stuff right. You know, it's, um, it's, um, I'm trying to think what it is it's like now 1023 or something like that. Um, and, and it's playing very few commercials. It, you know, pays for its, it, it develops its relationship with these advertisers so that, you know, they, you know, they do lots of remotes and things like that to, to kind of be, to get their, you know, um, return on investment by investing in the radio station. So, and, and they have personalities around the clock that, you know, they play a lot of music, but they, but they also talk a lot, you know, and they're engaged with the, with the personnel, with they're engaged with the, um, the listeners by, you know, communicating on social media and texting and things like that things that you know you would have done back in the day you would have been talking to listeners on the phone you know Mm -hmm. and you know and and you know as a kid I remember I was I would get so excited you know to be able to call the request line and talk to somebody you know and and you know it meant the world to me um you know that somebody would pick up the phone and talk to this you know this this pimply faced 14 year old kid you know so um you know, and anyway, but that's, you know, as, as you stated, that's, that's one of the things that's killed our, killed our, our businesses. We don't have enough investment in great personalities. Yeah, I'm saying that there aren't, 
Not saying there aren't great personalities, but right. there are, but right. there's a lot less than we need. Well, I think, I think, uh, I think the industry has forgotten about that largely. Um, and, and I, I believe, at least from my experience, it all started when, uh, Bill Drake and Boss Radio turned, turned, uh, <laughs> Uh, programmers sideways. They didn't understand what he was doing. He wasn't eliminating personality by any stretch of the imagination. You listen to the people that were uh, the big stars on uh, KHJ and KFRC and uh, on and on and on through, you know, WRKO. These guys had, had personality coming out the ears, but they just learned how to be brief with it, which is to give it real impact and all that stuff. So people heard that and they say, Oh, okay. We got to stop. Uh, we got to stop doing long stuff. We got to, we got to stop trying to be funny. We just got to introduce the hits and Hey, well, I know we can, we can promote an event between records and that kind of stuff. And that's where it all went, went down the hill. It's like people not understanding what that was about. Don't you think? Yeah, a, a thousand percent. Um, uh, you know, and, and during the seventies and eighties, all these, you know, uh, more music, less talk radio right. stations, especially the light music stations. And, um, you know, that's one of the death of a thousand cuts too, where we allowed Arbitron to change its measurement to, um, listen to hear versus listen. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, it, I don't want to get off track, but that, that, that change, um, instead of making radio a foreground medium, it made it a background medium. And that also favored all those light music stations that played a lot of music so they could be heard at work because work diaries became worth 10 times what a normal music station listening diary was right. to top 40. Yeah. So, so anyway, so all those, uh, you know, so that whole focus on that. And then there was, I won't say who it was. There was a, in, back in the early 2000s, there was a big research company that did a study, you know, says, why are we, why are we, you know, radios having problems and what's the, what's the reason? And it was, and the, and the study goes too many interruptions. And of course, those interruptions weren't commercials, right. for God's sakes. Oh my God, not those commercials and not those uh, obnoxious sweepers, you know, you know, turn your, turn your dot, rip, rip your, your knob off your, your radio. And, uh, you know, just a lot of obnoxious, meaningless sweepers instead of personality. But they, what they came up with was that we had to reduce personality. That was part of it. Yeah. So, and so, a lot, so that, that big, a uh, research company was listened to by a lot of big radio comp- radio station companies, and they reduced the amount of talk that the personality could, you know, could talk. So um, that's, you know, another another big reason that uh, that we are in the the uh, the, the uh, doldrums that we are in today. I think another aspect of of uh, of uh, radio was the as you alluded to, it's like the number of commercials. Good Lord. How can you expect people to sit through all that? Well, one way they used to sit through the commercials was that the commercials were entertaining. People realized it, people in programming and in ad agencies understood that that was it went 15, 20% of our product was the commercial. The commercial not only has to get your attention and sell you a product or a service, but it has to do so in an entertaining fashion. Otherwise, it's just turning you off. And mm-hmm. now 
Virtually every commercial you hear on any local radio station at any level of market was written by somebody in the sales department who really doesn't understand how to do that. And uh, then just, you know, then it's read live with all the grammatical errors and so forth. And you don't have people like Chuck Bloor out there turning out, you know, genius productions that were, that, you know, really identified the product or service and, and made people tune in actually and tune in instead of tune out. He was amazing, wasn't he? Just, just an amazing man. I, I I was lucky enough. He was dating one of my father's, um, he was dating one of my father's, um, uh, buyers. My father ran a clothing company back in the day, uh, Judy's and Nobby's. So there's a, a gorgeous, um, uh, uh, buyer. And so he, he started dating her and my dad asked him to actually write me a, a letter of introduction mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, when I was leave, when I wanted to leave K Earth and, and I, I went out to all the radio stations in the country and, and I did not get a job from that. Um, but my, it was, uh, uh, Rick Leipert and uh, KGB in San Diego actually said, you know, I would like to hire you. You know, can you come down and do production? And I had absolutely no personality. I, you know, my personality was not geared toward, you know, doing commercials or imaging or anything like that. So I said, you should talk to my friend, Jeff Prescott. And my friend, Jeff Prescott wound up doing that and then wound up being the morning guy for, for the, for KGB eventually. So anyway, but, but Glor was brilliant. Oh, when I went to, when I went to LA for the second time and right around 2000, I uh, reached out to Chuck Glor and said, I've been, you know, such a fan of yours for so long. I'd just like to stop by and say hello. If you give me a couple minutes, he said, sure. Come on down. He not only gave me a couple minutes, he gave me like three hours. Wow. And we just sat and we talked, we talked production. And a lot of people don't, don't, I, th- I think don't believe me when I tell them, it was like, you know, when I first started out in programming, when I started out as a program director, I had the authority to pull commercials off the air if they were, if they were awful. I mean, that, can you imagine such a thing? You were in programming too. How did you try to, you know, to make people understand, people in the radio station or in the company understand that you can't just throw away this time that we're broadcasting. We've got to do something useful with it. Absolutely. I mean, you it it, it had it all went back to and and you were you know back at KHJ. You know that's one of the reasons Drake kind of lost his position. You know, um, which kind of brought me into, you know, to work with you. But, but Drake had fought Dwight Case, who was a sales manager at KHJ, because I don't think he wanted to run a hemorrhoid commercial or something like that. And, and, you know, Dwight went all the way up to, uh, to the top and fought him over it. And Drake lost, Bruce Johnson, right? And Drake lost his job. So it all goes back to who's in charge. And, um, when I was at KZZP in Phoenix, um, I had an incredible general manager, a guy named Mickey Franco, and he backed me. And if there was something that was too obnoxious, you know, whether it was, it was sirens or something like that in the commercial or, you know, just really obnoxious stuff, I, you know, um, you know, I was able to keep it off the air or have them redo it. Um, but that happened less and less as my time in programming went on or consulting. You mentioned K-Earth. Let's go back to the beginning for the two of us together. It was K-Earth 1973. It was 50 years ago this year. 
And uh, I was, I had just turned 22 and was programming the number seven radio station in Los Angeles. It was automated. Yes. But still that was, that was uh, quite a position for me to have. And what happened uh, just to give a quick background for people uh, listening or watching is that uh, as, as you said, Drake was booted out of RKO and in the process. And I actually think it was Dwight. Dwight had become president by that point. Okay. Bruce Johnson has quit. So it was Dwight and, and, uh, Drake that had the, the, the falling out. So then Dwight hired Paul Drew to be vice president in charge of programming. Paul Drew called me as program director of the local FM station and all the FM stations in the chain in RKO at the time. I think with one exception, I want to say waxy in Fort Lauderdale, maybe, maybe WFYR, the great Chicago fire, as they call it. Um, anyway, we, we were all doing the oldies. We were all playing automated oldies. So, so, um, Paul Drew said, I want you to go to Boston and chair this meeting with these program directors and we're going to get our own music going and you need to get, get underway with, uh, making up the lists and the, and, uh, recording the, the big 10 inch reels full of music and so forth. I don't know how to do that. But, uh, in Boston, I found a guy named Chip Hobart. Remember the late Chip Hobart? And yeah, sure he, did. he did the production. He did the production, but I still needed somebody to put together the list and figure out what we should be playing. And that's where you came along. I don't remember the details, but I do remember that you were like either in high school or straight out of high school or something like that. And you, yeah. had, you had an encyclopedic mind about music. Explain it from your perspective. So, um, yeah, I was actually, um, it was the, um, big, it was this, my junior year of college at UCLA. Oh, okay. I may have looked like I was, yeah, you, you looked, you looked, I always yeah. looked 10 years younger than I was. <laughs> um, but, um, and so, so I, um, I had been a fanatic about, you know, about music and I collected record charts, uh, and, uh, billboard charts. I collected the KHJ charts and, um, and my friend Sherman Cohen, who I mentioned earlier, had given me because I got to LA in 1966 with my dad when he went out to, to, uh, work for, for Judy's, uh, and, so I started collecting charts and then Sherman gave me KFWB and KRLA and I, and I, and I wanted to understand what the biggest song of all times were. So, um, that's why I got these charts because I wanted to go through and calculate their lifespans based on their position on the chart. Number one got 30 points, thinking boss 30, number uh, 30 got one point and I, you know, and, and so on and so on. And I calculated their lifespans and I ranked it based on the points. And, um, and I got it written up in Warner Brothers Circular when I went looking for a job at Warner Brothers. They thought it was fascinating. They did my Los Angeles all time top 1000. And then uh, Rolling Stone did one, but it had to be national. So I did it on Billboard. So that's my, and I remembered everything I calculated. So everything was just in my mind. I knew the peak of the song. I knew what month it peaked. Um, so anyway, so uh, Betty Brenneman. Um, you know, who was, was music coordinator for RKO invited me to come in and said, I want to talk to you. And I started, you know, 
like I said, pimply 14, <laughs> pimply kid, you know, I'm walking in and I'm asking her questions about KHJ. And she said, you know, she, she found me interesting. And when you guys needed a, you know, a music person, um, uh, Hal Rosenberg called me in and, and I came in and, and he interviewed me and, you know, and then I met you. So, uh, that's how I, I got in to, uh, to, to work with you at K Earth. Um, and I knew nothing, Dave. I mean, you were, I remember, you may not even remember this because I remember everything like it was yesterday. It's unfortunately part of my, as you call it, encyclopedia. Yes. <laughs> I remember everything. So, uh, you know, I remember you coming in and I remember putting lists together for you and you said, well, do you know anything about tempo? Because you got too many slow songs here. And I went, uh, what? So, um, you know, the, I, you know, and of course, Tempo became a huge thing as I went into programming and consulting because it was, you know, essential to putting together, you know, good hours of music, but uh, didn't know anything about it at the time. Um, you know, today I would have done those lists completely different than I did back then, but you know, I know a little more than I did back then too. So, and, um, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about that Paul Drew incident because that's, that's pretty funny. And you know, the inside story, you may not want to talk about it, but um, I, no, sure. Let's talk about it. I don't. I, okay. I, I'm not even sure. We, you know, you say the Paul Drew story. I've got about a dozen of them, and I, you know, so uh, what are we? What are we talking about here? So, 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 uh, you know, as I'm putting the list together, um, and I'm about three months in, two months in before Paul becomes, you know, whatever it is, VP, President, Radio, you know, Radio, and he's over all of us, and you know, he's he's going to put his thumb down on the process. Right. And so, so I put, yeah, as you, as we know, Paul can do, could do. And, um, and I had put Jackie Wilson's higher and higher on the list. And I, and I don't know why I did that because, you know, I knew darn well that, you know, we covered like 50, 54, 55 to 1963. That's the era that, that, uh, that K specialized in. That was that, you know, nostalgic rock and roll era. But I put in higher and higher, which is 1967. You know, I said, well, it fits, you know, and I put it on because we needed songs. We needed something more R&B. And, um, and I get this call. And Paul's going, what the fuck? You know, he's literally using every word at me. And I'm going, like, you know, just in shock. He goes, what are you doing to this radio station? And I go, Paul? And, and by he goes, the way, that, yeah, that conversation did not start with, hi, guy, this is Paul Drew. <laughs> He just starts screaming the minute you yeah. pick up the phone and it takes you a minute yeah. to figure out who it is. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So, so he's, he's absolutely unleashing the, 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 uh, the torrent of, of abuse on me. And I'm going and I, 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 I listened to him and I got pissed. And I said, Paul, if you don't like it, you can fire me. And he didn't know what to say. He sat there for 30 seconds. And he, it's like he was going, no, who the hell had the balls to tell me that, especially this 21 year old kid for God's sake, you know? And he just said, pause, pause, pause. And he goes, let me talk to Dave Williams. And I went, okay. Hey, hey, Dave, Paul wants to talk to you. And that was it. And I go, I'm, I'm screwed. I'm, I'm probably my, my radio career's over. You know, and I, and I had, I had, Dave, I had no idea how important Paul was. I knew he was important, but I didn't know that he was probably the most powerful guy in radio at that time. Yeah, he probably <laughs> was. Yeah. I, you know, what you discovered there was, uh, I, I don't, I, 
Paul had two sides to him. I rarely saw the nice side, rarely, but I know that it existed in one way. I know that. And it actually really pissed me off when he did this. This was about the same time. It may have been that same day. It may have been when you transferred the call to me at the time. I don't know, but uh, he wanted to know, you know, how many, uh, how many reels have we cranked out in Boston? How many, how many are we have in the can ready to go or something like that? Or what, you know, what's the schedule? How are we on the schedule? I says, we're a little bit behind. You know, we've got, you know, 12 reels or something like that. Well, when are you going to get it done? I said, I, I, I don't know. I hopefully by, you know, whatever I said, I said, and then he growled, growled at me some more. I said, Paul, when do you want it done? And he said, yesterday. Of course. <laughs> I paused for a second. I said, I can't handle that. If you want to talk like a rational human being, fine. Otherwise, I'll see. <laughs> and he did the same thing that he did with you. He said to me, well, how about this time next month? <laughs> oh, I said, okay. I think we can probably do that. Next day, I walked into the office and my, my secretary, we call him at the time and now the administrative assistant. So she said, uh, Paul's on the line for you. I thought, uh-oh, here we go. I picked up the phone, and he said to me, he said, how's the number one FM program director in Los Angeles this morning? <laughs> Sincere as you could be, and that just fried my butt, man. <laughs> you mind game playing SOS, you know, my point, and I do know people, I know, uh, I know people who uh, really, really thought highly of Paul. And being that he's uh, he's gone, and uh, I don't like to speak ill of the dead. Like I say, he had another side to him. But boy, it could be tough trying to find. <laughs> he, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, and and before I move on about my good Paul stories, um, uh, did he, so he didn't say so when he when I transferred the call to you, he you don't remember him saying anything about me or anything else. No, I don't think so. Oh my God! I don't. So I don't, he just. He, I just, I just put a big hand up and said, "Hang on, basically," and he just, he just moved on. Yeah. He well, you know, on. he, I, 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 here we go again. I, I was in his office one time at KHJ when he was program director there. It was before he became vice president in charge of programming. I don't know. I was just visiting or something. Anyway, he got a phone call. As he picked up the phone, he had a one of those little timer, one of those little sand timers, little egg timer kind of thing. He so turned it over, and then he would talk to who he was talking to. And before the sand ran out, he goes, "All right, gotta go, bye." And then he'd hang up. And he saw the look on my face, and he said, "If a person can't can't call me and and say what they need to say within three minutes, I'm not going to talk to him anymore." And and that was kind of his approach to life. I remember walking down the sidewalk at uh, Los Angeles Airport one time after picking him up, and, he, and there was a crowd on the sidewalk, and uh, he saw me step aside for somebody who was coming at us. He says, do this. He said, watch me. Do this. Don't move at all. They'll all go around. You don't have to move. They will. And that was his <laughs> attitude about life. You know? Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. You, you, you know, it's funny because you were the, the, one of the stories I was going to tell you was about the, the egg timer and he yeah. gave me one. Um, and I, and I can't think of her name who was, who was his assistant at RKO, um, later, um, Gail Mitchell. Um, she's got one of them too. And he gave me one of them and I, you know, I've got it somewhere, you know, today <laughs> I would treasure it 
because yeah. I know what it meant to him. I mean, you're telling me more than I knew. Um, he, um, a famous story about his record meetings, because he had that meeting on Tuesday, this, you know, that traditional, you know, meet all the record reps on Tuesday meeting. And, um, you know, and he always did that. He always had the little egg like, timer out and people knew they had the, whatever it was, the three minutes. Mm-hmm. So the three minutes that they had to talk to him. And one of the guys was a new young kid from, uh, from, and I can't think of his name from Epic. And his guy was put full of piss and vinegar. He was a partier. He was a, you know, kind of a wild child and he wasn't going to put up with Paul shit. So Paul, you know, Paul does that he, and he, he'd been prepared. He, he, you know, was brand new and he saw Paul do that, you know, with the, the egg timer. And he goes, you got three minutes. And he started talking and he's going through his spiel and it's, you know, and he's running out of time. And Paul, Paul's looking at the, looking at the egg timer and he goes, well, you better hurry up. And the <laughs> guy got pissed off. And the guy picked it up and he threw it against the wall. Oh my. And it broke into a thousand pieces. And Paul had a big grin on his place face and he goes, you know, I've been waiting for somebody to do that forever. Yeah. And yeah. he said, and he goes, and he reached into his drawer. There was a hundred more and he goes, okay, you still got three minutes. I'll give you three <laughs> more minutes, but you better hurry up. That's, you know, so- that's a beautiful, beautiful story. And that, that explains him perfectly. Uh, you know, I can see the irony and the humor and all of that. I can see what he was getting at when he would challenge people that way, but I didn't like it. And I was very young and uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. Let me ask you about uh, the technology and how it has affected uh, music sales and music consumptions. We can take just a, a couple of minutes. I don't want to take up your whole day here, but uh, you know, everybody I know, well, I should say everybody over the age of 30 or 40 that I know, Still longs for the day when they go to a music store or, or wherever and buy something they could take home that had in their hand. It was either mm-hmm. a record album with beautiful cover and liner notes and all that stuff, or uh, later on CDs that still had all that stuff. And we all kind of miss that. Now we download music. Mm-hmm. Now we listen to music for free or we pay $15 a month to listen to the songs we want. And we don't own it. We don't feel any personal connection to it. Has that affected the industry? Oh, I think it has. I think that it just like you talk about with radio programmers and managers about personalities and underestimating their importance or about commercials. I think that the industry has kind of forgotten how meaningful, you know, uh, the physical uh, element was for having a, you know, an album or a 45 or whatever it was, you know, 45 with a picture sleeve. Um, so yeah, I think that's a big part of, of, you know, part of what's, what's happened. And, and, you know, um, uh, people don't really make a lot of money. Uh, per- artists don't make a lot of money from their music. They make their money from, you know, merchandising, you know, in their concerts and things like that, they don't make a lot of money from their music, which is absolutely insane. And, you know, our, the, the music industry has kind of devalued the song. Um, and, uh, you know, um, just everything about the way things are created musically, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, 
people doing it all on computer and the lack of the personnel, lack of the, the musicians all working together to create something magical. I mean, that's part of it too. Um, uh, just the whole process has changed. So that's part of why music's devalued. And I, and I think it's a, I think it's, it's a big part of why we're kind of in the doldrums <laughs> going back to the music cycle is that people who really don't, you know, my friend Steve Perrin used to have this term when he talk about, you know, people that, that, you know, were, that I thought were bright people and why the radio stations were failing. And he goes, they're DGI man. And I go, what do you mean DGI? He goes, yeah, they're DGI man. He's doing his, Scott Shannon impression. And I, and I go, what? And then he goes, they're, they're part of the DGI club. And I go, what the hell are the DGI club? He goes, they, they don't get it, man. Ah. <laughs> you know, so that, I mean, just, I think there's just a lot of people that don't get it and don't care. They're all trying to make, make, you know, make more money from, you know, as, as easily as possible. And the creative process is difficult. Well, sure. And it, and it takes human beings to do it. Not, and it's also not expensive if you're doing it correctly, right? right. The production right. costs of making a record that's not making right. anybody any money. Right. What the hell? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's certainly one of the biggest problems we face as an industry, whether it's radio or it's music industry is that, that, uh, you know, we're, we don't want to invest in, in things that will cost too much money. And, and if you're, and if you're, if you're not going to make a lot of money anyway from your music, how are you going to be able to pay for all those musicians and a great producer? Like you mentioned earlier, uh, Phil Spector's of, of today. I mean, you, you're not going to pay for that. Right. And you're not going to get into, you're not going to get into a, a, you know, booking large concert venues either. If you're, if you're not selling the records, sometimes I wonder, you know, why people bother to, uh, to uh, create music anymore, I guess it's just it's in it's in them. It's it's who they are. It's their soul. And yeah, what they got to do. What about the future? Got a couple of thoughts about the future of radio of uh, music. Where's it going from here? I, mean, I don't know about music. Um, you know, I think we have to get back to uh, all the things we just talked about. You know, about appreciating that that fellowship of artists creating something special and and you know reward them monetarily for that um and you know having having great record label uh people uh owners being willing to invest in that process you know without understanding how to make a hit song or how to make just something meaningful to somebody musically um you know without that understanding and, and without willing to invest it's going to be a problem for music for a while you know luckily you got Taylor Swift you know who's who's made so much money with everything else she's doing that she can afford to do things the way she wants to do them but how many people are Taylor Swift you know one in a bill one in a billion and as far as radio it's you know it's radio's got to get back to doing you know, the things we talked about. I mean, it's, they got to reinvest in personalities. They got to cut the commercial load. Um, they got to make every single element on the radio station interesting again, including commercials, you know, including contests and having fun and, you know, and then connecting with the audience, you know, 
you know, instantaneously because we have a, you know, we've created a, a world of short, as they used to short attention span theater, you know, people, people just don't have that attention span anymore to sit by. So, you know, you have to do it in, you know, in, in a shorter amount of time. So, um, just all those basics that we did and you grew up, you know, loving and I grew up loving. We've got to get back to doing that with the radio again. I guess it's going to take people who are the age we were when we started. It's going to take the new, the newer generation and the newer innovators to uh, figure out how to put all that together and to redefine uh, value in content for people. Mm-hmm. Guys, Absolutely. This has, been, this has been great. Thank you so much. I have really enjoyed talking with you, especially given the fact that it's been 50 years since we've seen each other. <laughs> But I've watched I, I, your yeah. I've watched your legend grow, and uh-huh. uh, uh, taken a certain amount of pride in that I gave you a place to sit and do your job at uh, K Earth, that old studio, oh. which was an old house. <laughs> was it? I didn't know it was yeah. an old house. Yeah. Oh God! Yeah. In Fairfax and Venice. Right. Right. Yeah. All right, man. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll. I'll be in touch. I love that. Maybe we can let's stay in touch. Morning. All right, and I'll let you know when this is ready to go. Great. Thank you, Dave. All right. Bye-bye. My pleasure. Bye.